Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. Well, John Birdsall, how are you, Kirk? Doing pretty well there, John Boy. That's doing pretty good. You know, I'm I'm glad that you finally rolled around to be able to join us. You've been so darn busy lately. Well, it's you know, been, it's called trial, trial, trial. I know. And, and, I, and you're gonna suffer the same fate, I'm sure, soon. I know, I know. I, I explained that to all of our listeners that you're doing the good work of the defense bar. And mm-hmm. uh, in fact, on some of those occasions, it was, it was when you were out chasing down witnesses or filing last minute issues or gathering things around. And, and at least on two of those occasions, I met up with you later in the day to continue the work on the same cases we were doing. Um, such is the life of the criminal defense. It is the life. It's a good <laughs> life because it's good work. It is it's good, good work. work. You know, it is. I mean, it's, it is. it's, it's, uh, and, and, and when things, um, align just right and you have reasonable, thoughtful judges, um, and, uh, even if you don't, you know, get the whole pie, but you, maybe you get a quarter of it. Um, you know, it's like you're, it's, it's a game of inches. It's kind of like golf, I guess. It's a game of inches at the end of the day, um, to advance the ball, you know, or football. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not talking about football anymore. <laughs> golf. My dad always says golf was a game of inches because you know, really, you could hit a three hundred yard drive, a spectacular, you know, approach shot, mm-hmm. and then you, know, you four putt. <laughs> you know? Right? Did you miss by an inch three times? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, uh, but. You know, at some point in the show, I want to talk about um, what will be filed soon, um, hopefully, which is a uh, class action lawsuit uh, that I have been participating in for several years now and kind of keeping it on the DL, but uh, because it was a lot of work uh, to um, arrange things, but um but we can get into that a little later. Uh, there's sure. lots of legal news going on, man. Lots of yeah. Well, news. I want to talk about a big uh, news story that came out earlier this week, and it was you know on the national level talking about how many states are reconsidering the the rampant use, or I guess frequent use, of no knock warrants. And this has always been a problematic area of the law. And just to explain to our well, listeners, awful area. Yeah, a very awful area. But just to explain to our listeners the background behind all of this, in a typical situation when the police or whatever law enforcement agency is obtaining a warrant, it's supposed to be executed, um, you know, the, traditionally. And it, they do try to follow this somewhat regularly in Wisconsin, under Wisconsin law anyway, but it's preferable in the, in the daytime because there's less of a, you know, an intrusion of privacy, so to speak, that way. And it also shouldn't be executed in a manner that's excessive. Um, however, for years and years and years, it was a fairly common thing, especially in drug cases, that law enforcement would, in the process of getting their warrant, want to get a no-knock warrant. And they'd have to justify why they don't have to knock and announce before executing the warrant. So the, the basic premise is that in order for it to comport with our 
understanding of what a reasonable search process would include. There's supposed to be some dignity in intact from the recipient of said search. Um, although so when they're done, you hardly know it because it's very common that the entire place is just ripped to shreds. Um, let's, 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 let's paint a picture for folks that maybe just, you know, hear about no knocks or hear execute a search warrant when they show up, the police show up to execute a no knock search warrant, any search warrant really, but a no knock in particular, they show up in mass. I mean, it's like a military operation with military style um, weapons with military style garb. Um, and, um, and a no knock means they're knocking your door down. Like, and they're probably going to do it at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Which and I don't know the case. Maybe you know. Maybe you do, Kirk. But there was a, I believe, a Supreme Court case at some point that said that you you can't execute search warrants, um, you know, like in the middle of the night. You know, so I think somehow they arrived at six a.m. was the earliest. Six a.m. is okay. Well, really is okay. So, but they knock it down and they come in with their guns drawn. Everybody's on the floor. Children grandparents, whatever, whoever's there, they're treated like absolute garbage. Um, everybody's cuffed. Uh, and, and, uh, they're screaming at the top of their lungs and, um, it's like a hideous experience. You know what um, a flashbang I have, right? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Flashbangs are, um, I think the technical term is distraction explosives something like that and uh they're like little sort of mini hand grenades that the cops can toss in and it it makes a a supposedly harmless yet loud and uh bright confusion explosion type situation to theoretically confuse everybody in the room so that they're psychologically disarmed uh for purposes of them infiltrating the home but you're right it's like a military operation And, and you know I I hate to throw this in there, but I think it is true, especially when we give this a little bit of retrospective analysis. You know, the police get a lot of funding for these types of fancy toys. And if I had a bunch of fancy military toys, I'd want to use them once in a while. Wouldn't you? I mean, like, hey, why don't we ever get to use this uh, battering ram to knock down the door? (laughs) Well, you know what? I think everybody in the country got to see this militarization of the police firsthand in Ferguson in 2015, 16, whenever that was, mm-hmm. um, when, uh, you know, there was riots over Michael Brown's death. Um, riots aren't even the right word. It's just like massive uh, protest. And they came in and they did the same thing in Kenosha, you know, during with the Rittenhouse stuff and the George and the Jacob Blake uh, protests they come in with literally these uh, military weapons that they literally got from the military. The Defense Department had this huge program where they were, you know, spinning off old equipment to local police departments. And so they got, you know, rocket launchers and they got armored personnel carriers and they got, you know, assault, you know, you know lots assault assault rifles and they got, yeah, and lots of Humvees. And I mean, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, um, 
our, our military is meant to protect the uh, institution of the United States, which is from foreign uh, adventures, not to be used against the people themselves. And that's what it feels like in a lot of communities, quite frankly. It feels like an invasion of their communities and an occupation of their communities. And, um, and I don't blame them for being upset. And by them, I mean, you know, mostly black and brown people. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's an issue that I think is ripe for further consideration. And I think many uh, communities throughout the country are reconsidering, you know, this whole controversy about is it defunding the police or is it really like reanalyzing how those funds are actually allocated? And we do need to continue spending a lot of money on uh, community support. And as you and I have discussed many times, there is a very important role that the police play. But the point is that it's become one of these things where uh, it's overkill and it really just damages the relationship that the that the community would like to have with the police, all communities, you know, if it's, if it's our most incarcerated zip code in the, the country, what we, which we have right in the Northern section of Milwaukee, um, that community deserves to have a uh, co-optive uh, cooperative relationship with law enforcement, like any other community does. And to say that yeah, but, but, it's rife with crime, right, but, just a cop out, you know? Well, when they feel as though, the police can move with impunity to um, just like level anything in their path, which is the way they operate in the zip code you're talking about, 53206. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there's never going to be any healing about racial divisions when this is the feeling that they get. And it's a legitimate feeling. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so how can you not feel that when, when, when nothing happens to the police, when they just literally – just carte blanche, oh, like trash, yeah. smash stuff up. Yeah. You know, no, no consequence. Yeah. None. So, well, we got to take a break, but when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Right. We'll be right back. And we are back. More legal defense. Kirk and John. We survived the commercial break. Kirk and spiel. That's the nickname that Kirk likes to give himself. I don't. Could you explain Kirk and spiel, please? Is that like a German uh, derivative, even though your name is not German? Yes, I can, I can explain it. Yes. Um, okay, my stepmother uh, was born in Namibia and grew up speaking German as her first language. And then when she was 18, she moved to Germany and went to college uh, or finished her secondary schooling and went to college in uh, Heidelberg. And she has a lot of relatives in Germany. So she's fluent in German and she speaks with a very heavy German accent. So ever since um, she became my stepmother, oh, you know, 35, 40 years ago, she's always called me Kirkenspiel. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a joke. So, <laughs> oh, wow. That's a one, one of my many nicknames, you know. Uh, I, that is the first time hearing it, but that's actually an awesome story. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you something. When I a student at UW-Madison, a wonderful, fine institution, they had a requirement that you had to have four semesters of a foreign language, which is probably a reasonable requirement, but it was one that I chaffed at because I have apparently been born without the genetic, um, the gene that allows you to learn foreign languages. And so um, 
Uh, I tried very, very hard to learn Spanish, which we would think is one of the easier ones. Um, but no, I was a failure at that. So I switched to German. And the reason I switched to German, I should have done French, but the reason I switched to German was because um, at UW-Madison, I don't know how many times you've been there, but many. Um, at, at, the, at, the, uh, at the Memorial Union, which is at the center of campus, um, there is a, uh, a bar called the Rathskiller. Yes. And it's like a German-themed bar. And all over the walls are German sayings and paintings and things. And so we, we would study, this buddy of mine and I, we would go there and, uh, and we would read the walls to practice. So wait, is that um, what you're saying? You did four years of German by going to the Rathskeller and reading what was on the wall. That four years of that. No, is that what you're saying? Oh, four, no. <laughs> we had to take four semesters of foreign oh, language, and two of two of those were German. Okay. And um, so yes, but and, there was classroom and, activity. And, yeah. I'm assuming it wasn't just this Rathskeller exercise. I did go to class. I did go okay. to class. I had a very very good t- teaching assistant, and um, uh, but. Despite how good he was, there was never, there was never going to be my my genetic um, uh, failings uh, were always going to prevent the permanent um, understanding of a foreign language. So, so I, Spiel, I took, that's I took six years now. of Spanish and retained very little of it. Um, and I think it's like most things: if you don't use it, it kind of leaves your your skill set. You know, our one of our fabulous attorneys in our office at one time was conversationally fluent in Russian. You know that very well. And it she doesn't get a chance to use it very often, so it kind of fades away over time. It's just odd how that happens. Well let me this is I'm gonna I'll, I'll we'll get back to the law in a minute, but I will recite for you what I know in German. Mind Gott, which was my God. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know why we thought it was hilarious to say that all the time. And then um, uh, I also learned that the famous uh, John F. Kennedy line, Ich bin ein Berliner um, from 1962 or something when they did the Berlin airlift Mm -hmm. um, is actually grammatically wrong. Mm -hmm. Because you're not supposed to say ein Berliner. You're supposed to say Ich bin Berliner. Mm -hmm. So. That is the extent of what, my what I what I've journey. heard about that, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. By saying "Ein Berliner," um, there is, I thought, maybe this is just a rumor, a particular type of sausage that you can get at the sausage stand that is called a Berliner. Um, this, <laughs> so this I do not know. Well, this is what I heard, and it could be totally okay. wrong. But it's so technically, it, it could be speak by using ein by using the ein, it made it sound like he was a hot dog. So okay, so I am a hot dog Berliner. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, well, could be. Could uh, be. I mean, it was still a dramatic moment in world history, but sure, just just saying. So, well, tell right. us about this uh, imminent. Thing that's going to happen that you've right. been working so, on so hard. Yeah, this is uh, so. Here's the background. So, well, we'll start with the foreground, and we'll do a little Tarantino thing, and we'll go back and revisit the past. <laughs> um, so, the foreground is, is that 
Um, we have assembled, and by we, I mean the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, have assembled a legal team to bring a class action against the Public Defender's Office of the State of Wisconsin. And the basis of the lawsuit is to represent the class of people who are individuals charged with criminal offenses in Wisconsin that are eligible for the State Public Defender Services, the SPD, and um, the SPD's failure in thousands and thousands of cases all over Wisconsin to find them lawyers. And there's myriad reasons why they can't find them lawyers. Low pay, uh, people are just tired of, you know, the, the way that public defender's office is run, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so those people that are charged with offenses that are usually on like low cash bail sit in jail for weeks, months, sometimes over a year, while the public defender's office tries to find them lawyers. And the public defender's office has staff lawyers, but many, almost half, of the public defender's office's cases are farmed out to private defense lawyers. And so, excuse me, a lot of people may be surprised to hear that. But 41% of their caseload uh, goes to private defense lawyers. Well, it used to be that um, they didn't have any problem. I used to take these cases routinely uh, for, you know, a couple of decades, actually. Did did thousands and thousands and thousands of these cases. But um, people aren't taking them anymore because it's just economically not feasible to take them. And this is indicative of the starvation strategy of the state legislature to not properly fund public defense of indigent defendants in Wisconsin. And the basis of the lawsuit, the legal basis, is the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which provides that every criminal defendant, by its text, the Sixth Amendment says that every criminal defendant has a right to effective assistance of counsel. And the definition of that is that a lawyer who actually knows what they're doing has to be appointed if you're too poor to find a lawyer. Well, there's literally several hundred thousand people every single year in Wisconsin that are eligible, that are charged in Wisconsin courts. And um, for thousands and thousands and thousands of them, for several, many years now, they have sat for weeks and months while they try and um while the SPD tries to find them a lawyer. The problem with that, of course, is not only that somebody is being held in a cage and they're presumed innocent, but any attempt by them to defend themselves uh, could be lost in that time. Witnesses disappear. Evidence is lost. Surveillance tapes are overwritten. You know, that sort of thing. And they have a right to know what's going on and they know nothing. And I literally just met with some um, this week to sign them up as plaintiffs in this class action, which is we hope to have filed in the next two, maybe three weeks. And uh, and it's it's you know we might get shot down, but we have partners 
who have a lot of political muscle. And by that, I mean the law firm of Foley and Lardner uh, is uh, a uh, the the major player here. And it's a class action, which is, of course, not my area. It's criminal defense. But the class action is being headed by one of the Foley partners out of Boston, who, by reputation, is one of the top class action lawyers in the United States. So to go back, that's the foreground. To go back, this has been going on for decades. As you You've got about 20 seconds in this segment. So All right, you we'll, we'll pick this up on the other side. But <laughs> um, just as a teaser, this is this has literally been going on for 40 years in terms of um, the wave of, I, I guess, neglect by the legislature to fulfill their promise of uh, Gideon versus Wainwright um, 1963 Supreme Court decision. So there you go. There's your teaser. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, we were going to launch right back into the discussion about this class action lawsuit, which is pending. I do have a question, and this is probably one that would come to mind for just about anybody that hears about this. But um, the defendant in this class action would be, is rather, the public defender as an organization of the state of Wisconsin. So as, as an agency, I suppose, um, it makes it sound like there are people within that organization that have done something wrong. And I, I don't think that's really the point. So maybe you can explain that for yes. one that might not but, be. It's a really good point, actually. Um, so no, well, there are things that are wrong with the way the public defender's office is structured, but Putting that aside for a minute, we are lucky in Wisconsin to have a statewide public defender system in the first place. Um, and it might behoove us to have a little bit of history about how it developed and why things are the way they are right now, um, which is to say we are in absolute crisis mode. And we've been in crisis mode for well over um, well over a decade. And so I'll... This is going to be a Cliff Notes history, but um, uh, but I think it's important context to understand why this international law firm based in Milwaukee, why a national criminal defense uh, association is and a Wisconsin criminal defense association is participating and advocating for this is because uh, and all for free, by the way, all pro bono um, is because it truly is in crisis and nobody. Nobody who's in the system thinks otherwise. Everybody knows what's going on. All right. So here's here's kind of the history. In the United States Constitution, the Sixth Amendment, it says you have a right to counsel. Well, that right says uh, or has been interpreted in the 1800s to be a right just uh, to federal cases. Well, the 14th Amendment changed that, and the Due Process Clause applied it to the states. So the states then had a, and that was after the Civil War, so the states had a responsibility to provide counsel. Well, most of them didn't. Most of them didn't. And not until 1963, in a Supreme Court case called Gideon versus Wainwright, where um, Mr. Gideon who was a small-time petty theft thief, excuse me, in Alabama, 
wrote a handwritten petition to the United States Supreme Court uh, when the judge in his state case refused to appoint him a lawyer. So the Supreme Court took the case on a handwritten uh, petition from a prisoner and appointed a very famous um, uh, litigator out of New York to represent him in the Supreme Court. And they ruled that every single state has to provide, they have to provide a system to get lawyers for poor people. We call them indigent, but they're poor people, right? They cannot get a lawyer on their own. And it's, and just as an aside, and I'm sure you'll agree with the statement, is that having the assistance of a competent criminal defense lawyer when you're charged with the crime is absolutely invaluable because most cases, especially now, I think, are kind of paper thin. And that we're there to show the government that they are overreaching and they are over, they're drunk on their own power a lot of times, and they're charging cases that shouldn't be charged or they're overcharging cases, and that's what the lawyer does. Well, if you're just an individual without a lawyer sitting in jail and you have no communication or little communication from the outside and certainly no expertise in this, you can't do anything about it. So the Supreme Court in 1963 said, all right, enough of this. Okay, this is the Warren Court, and some call it an activist and liberal or whatever you want to call it. But that was a significant case in United States history and certainly in legal history. And, um, and so from that point on, every state was sort of on their own. There was no national strategy about what to do with state court cases because that's their jurisdiction. All right, that's fine. That's fair. Um, but many states took this as a joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, we'll do what you say. Yeah, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, uh, you know, I mean, just to get Texas, uh, and some took it very seriously. Uh, California, New York, somewhat, yeah. Well, you know, well, uh, let me ask you a question, just because this comes to mind. Um, and I know one of the issues we have here in Wisconsin, which I assume has been a, a bit of an issue everywhere, is you use the term poor and the, the the legal term is indigent but what does that even mean and is there any sort of standard determination of that because i yeah. one of the issues we see here in wisconsin every day is that we have clients i, I swear you you know this to be true we get phone calls Every day, several every day, I meet with clients regularly who are in that gray zone, which is a huge gap. It's like the representation gap, where in order to be truly indigent, where you qualify for public defender services, you have to be, you know, you have to be assetless completely. Like that is gotta be that very, is. you got to be completely practically. Me, destitute. Put it in real terms for you. So if you go to the public defender's office to apply. Um, If you um, own a home um, or even own a car, you probably don't qualify. Right. For a public, if you, if you work at a fast food restaurant at the drive through, that means you have assets. Right. And you probably don't qualify. Now there's a separate layer in Wisconsin. Right. Uh, called a dean appointment, which is named after a Wisconsin Supreme Court case, um, where a county judge can appoint a, a a private lawyer at a different rate, a higher rate, 
than the public defender's office pays. So the public defender's office currently pays $70 an hour. That's a very recent development. Mm-hmm. And that's also well, thanks mostly to you, really. Yes, that's I mean, true. But, but for 40 years, it was at $40 an hour, mm-hmm. which is just it's kind of insulting. And it's also part of the starvation method of conducting public defense that I was talking about. We've talked about this before. I've heard judges say this, that there are plenty of people that would be more than happy to earn $40 an hour because that is more than a living wage. There are people that work in factories that even skilled workers in factories that earn less than that. But none of those people have the overhead or the professional responsibility to pay for legal research tools to have an overhead, an office, a place, the books, the computers, the staff, the paralegals, the law degrees. It goes on the malpractice insurance. It's, it's like telling a doctor that you could operate on a, on a very low budget and still get by and do like minimally effective brain surgery. You know, we've, we've, we've we've crunched the numbers and when you net it out um, the average overhead, the overhead, not a profit, the overhead cost for a Wisconsin lawyer is over $120 an hour. Right. So so anyone that takes the $40 rate is automatically in the hole by about $70. They're automatically losing, losing money. So, so that was the Supreme Court case. And um, Wisconsin, to its credit was pretty much ahead of the curve in terms of trying to, at least on a countywide basis, um, provide lawyers. And in 1859, there was a case called Carpenter versus Dane County, which provided that um, they had the inherent authority to appoint counsel. So that was good. But after Gideon in, ni- in 1963, um, that countywide thing grew a lot bigger. And it also created a lot of conflicts with local judges and local lawyers, and there was favoritism, and and it was kind of a messy system. So in 1977, we created this statewide public defender's office. And so there's 35 trial offices around the state, and they handle their the, – the office is responsible for handling every single public defender's office uh, – excuse me, every single criminal charge of an indigent person – in Wisconsin, but they farm out 41% of those. And those are the $40 an hour people. Now, it's it's it was a dysfunctional system when it was designed, but it grew absolutely unworkable as the $40 an hour rate didn't change. And it didn't change until 2021 uh, when uh, the law actually took effect um, after the county rate, which had been $70 an hour, went up to 100 So we recognized, after both those events happened in 2018 and 2021, we recognized that this was not enough, and that's why we pursued this class action. I know we're running out of time, so maybe we could pick it up on the other side. Very, very good watching the clock there, my friend. Uh, we will be back right after these messages. We're back. More legal defense and more class action. <laughs> that's a, that's you're such a classy guy with all of your class actions and you your, know what at the press class. we file i'm gonna wear a uh, top hat and tails and uh <laughs> and uh what's what's a good song putting on the ritz putting uh, on the ritz i'll do but that you gotta do it like uh in young frankenstein 
Um, sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm good with that. And should I do it in that same voice? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Don't do it on the air. It's just too. It, it, <laughs> I, it's just I it's over it. the top. I couldn't do it if I tried. But yeah. All right. Uh, so anyways, so to pick up where we left off, we were um, talking about how this has devolved over 40 years. So from the late 70s until the late um, 2010s, uh, the um, pool of attorneys who are willing to take this obnoxiously, frankly, insulting low rate uh, was shrinking. And at the same time that that was happening, there was an explosion of the war on drugs, war on crime um, through the 90s and 2000s and massive, massive investment in new prisons, massive investment in new law enforcement, um, and a huge increase in charging. And so there was was like this huge disparity in funding between those two um, avenues. And, of course, it resulted in Wisconsin being the leading um, incarcerator of young black males, and uh, and several of which I've just met with to sign them up to be plaintiffs on this, and 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 so somebody had to do something. So that's why I started this campaign in about 2010 to increase the rate so that we could get good lawyers and we could get enough good lawyers, and we succeeded partially in doing that, but it didn't affect the SPD rate. And so after. They increased the county rate to $100, and the the legislature finally got the memo, and they increased it to 70, which was we we realized it was wholly insufficient. Yeah, by comparison, way short of just the overhead cost. By by comparison, the federal government pays uh, appointed lawyers $156 an hour, I believe it is. It's in the 150s, so well over twice what the state of Wisconsin has deemed reasonable. But the reason that they deemed that reasonable is because they don't care. They just don't care about the only thing part about the criminal justice system that the legislature cares about is um, uh, how many jails we have and how many, how much money we can give to the police. That's what they care about because that's where their headlines come from. And that's where their their campaign, you know, and, and but this whole, which really really confuses me because it seems to me that a lot of those folks that have that attitude are also the same folks that love, claim to love or understand the Constitution, and this is part of the Constitution. I mean, a big part, like a huge part, literally part of the Constitution. And um, and so so we determined that we had to bring this suit. And luckily, we found some very, very, very capable lawyers at a very powerful law firm with some also very powerful um, associations involved. And you know what? We could get rebuffed, but we're going to try and we're going to bring this and we're going to um, we have, uh, you know, some incredible uh, people involved, and we also have an excellent strategy, which we've been employing for the last two years, which is constantly shifting. Um, and 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 you'll be glad to know, as my partner in business, uh, that I'm making 
um, a lot, a lot of money. Um, I'll slip you a piece of paper that says the amount. Oh, it says zero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you left a few zeros off that zero. <laughs> so, uh, wait, wait. Can you multiply that by 10 and tell me how much you might make on this? You know what? That'll Still be great. <laughs> we can retire on that. We can retire on that. Uh, so, but, but, you know, it, okay, it's an altruistic thing. And, and it's so be it. If you're going to do something in your life that's going to try and make something better and something do something important, then we're going to do it. And that's what I've always dedicated myself. Yeah. Well, if we all did everything for the right reasons, we would be living in a better place. Um, and it's funny, you know, we're, you know, I know that you are doing a lot of work on this and I know other people in the firm are helping to the best they can, but you are definitely the knowledge base and all this and the master strategist, but um, you're doing something for free because lawyers are are not getting paid enough to be able to make it financially feasible to take these cases. So yeah. you're, you know, it's nice that you're doing that, but let me go back um, to when I was president of the Wisconsin association of criminal defense lawyers, which by the way, was right after you were president of the Wisconsin Association. Were you right after the Birdsall administration? I think I was. I think the Obear administration took over from the Birdsall administration. You wow. left a note in the desk, I recall, <laughs> and it said it gave me some advice on, you know, it said, you know, never trust Tip O'Neill, something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, it's all politics are local. Something. Got it. Yeah. Um, but this was right during the era, and I remember working pretty closely with you on this, but. There had been, uh, I don't, I don't know how to characterize this accurately or <clears throat> without insulting anybody, but uh, let me do my best. There had had grown uh, in the in the legal culture sort of this uh, bumper crop of lawyers that were willing to take anything in order to represent a client, and again. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but it tended to be lawyers. It was, it was growing and growing. There was this field of people that didn't have skills or qualifications or the infrastructure to have a, an actual working quality legal practice. And it was viewed as a way to make a quick buck and you could operate on quantity rather than quality. And it was almost an epidemic that was going on because there were lawyers that were doing terrible work. And, you know, basically they were in it for the $40 an hour because they were trying to make that the only way to make that work. And this is another part of what the systemic problem was. You can make it work, but you can't do it honestly. And you can't do hard work to actually benefit the client. You can send the bills in and say, I want this amount of money and you can, take a whole ton of these people and, you know, claim that you spent 10 hours on a case, but the only way to actually make it so you can make ends meet in that situation is that you got to cut corners. You have to provide ineffective assistance and you have to basically not do what the sixth amendment requires. That's the whole point. Which by the way is a violation of the constitution of the United States. Right. So this is when I know you helped me you but I, very seriously. I know. I, I start I, I started the campaign of just say no. I mean, I, 
I feel like you and I are partly responsible for creating the problem too, because going back that long ago, I remember giving speeches saying, just say, do like Nancy Reagan, just say no, Hmm. don't take these appointments because when you do take them, you're contributing to the problem. And uh, well, I mean, I think that since that time it did dwindle down and it was a matter of integrity and pride that you're not going to be affiliating yourself with a class of lawyers that are not interested in doing good quality legal work. So, I mean, we've come a long way from there. We've well, got a long way to go, but I really thank you for your efforts. You've been. Well, you know, thank you. And the, um, uh, the point you're making there is that um, it's a conundrum, you know, it's like, okay, I want to take these cases or like mm-hmm. my lawyer say, I want to take these cases and maybe they have impure, you know, just financial incentives and instead of like caring about the clients like we do. But um, uh, at the same time to withdraw from it is, 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 is kind of like it goes against my grain. Right. No, I mean, if you want to help people, but here's the thing. And I know you'll agree with me. You're actually doing harm to the system. If you, if you make it so that the norm or, or what's expected to happen in these situations is that you will, volunteer your time you know gratis that you that every case becomes pro bono because nobody can do that and and if you make it so it's expected that you will utilize your talents in a way that you won't get paid for them uh you're you're actually contributing to part of the problem by by being willing to do that all the time and that's not feasible on on that note and i know we're running out of time here on that note basically the legislature was betting that these lawyers would be subsidizing their responsibility, their responsibility to provide counsel for these poor people. But of right. course, who cares about poor people? Cause they don't vote and they don't have any money. To- uh, oh yeah. You got it, man. All right. That's all the time we have. Wow. What a, what a great show we had. We, we just before we're like, what should we talk about? I'm like, John, you will know what to talk about. And it turns out you knew, you knew exactly what to talk about. You did a great job. Well, I can do this for hours and hours, but go. Oh, ahead. I know. And, and we do, but we, and we will, uh, but tune in next week as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been legal defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Have a great one.